It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, two chapters from H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, beginning with Chapter 6. And now, Chapter 6. It would be cumbrous to give a detailed, consecutive account of our wanderings inside that cavernous, eon-dead honeycomb of primal masonry, that monstrous lair of elder secrets, which now echoed for the first time, after uncounted epochs, to the tread of human feet. This is especially true because so much of the horrible drama and revelation came from a mere study of the omnipresent mural carvings. Our flashlight photographs of those carvings would do much toward proving the truth of what we're now disclosing, and it is lamentable that we had not a larger film supply with us. As it was, we made crude notebook sketches of certain salient features after all our films were used up. The building which we had entered was one of great size and elaborateness, and gave us an impressive notion of the architecture of that nameless geologic past. The inner partitions were less massive than the outer walls, but on the lower levels were excellently preserved. 
labyrinthine complexity involving curiously irregular difference in floor levels characterized the entire arrangement, and we should certainly have been lost at the very outset but for the trail of torn paper we left behind us. We decided to explore the more decrepit upper parts first of all, hence climbed aloft in the maze for a distance of some one hundred feet to where the topmost tier of chambers yawned snowily and ruinously open to the polar sky. Ascent was effected over the steep, transversely ribbed stone ramps or inclined planes, which everywhere served in lieu of stairs. The rooms we encountered were of all imaginable shapes and proportions, ranging from five-pointed stars to triangles and perfect cubes. It might be safe to say that their general average was about 30 by 30 feet in floor area and 20 feet in height, though many larger apartments existed. After thoroughly examining the upper regions and the glacial level, we descended, story by story, into the submerged part, where indeed we soon saw we were in a continuous maze of connected chambers and passages, probably leading over unlimited areas outside this particular building. We soon realized from what the carvings revealed that this monstrous city was many millions of years old. The prime decorative feature was the almost universal system of mural sculpture, which tended to run in continuous horizontal bands three feet wide, and arranged from floor to ceiling in alternation with bands of equal width given over to geometrical arabesques. There were exceptions to this rule of arrangement, but its preponderance was overwhelming. This technique, we soon saw, was mature, accomplished, and aesthetically evolved to the highest degree of civilized mastery, though utterly alien in every detail to any known art tradition of the human race. In delicacy of execution, no sculpture I have ever seen could approach it. The minutest details of elaborate vegetation or of animal life were rendered with astonishing vividness despite the bold scale of the carvings, whilst the conventional designs were marvels of skillful intricacy. The more one inspired the marvelous techniques, the more one admired the things. Beneath their strict conventionalization, one could grasp the minute and accurate observation and graphic skill of the artist, and indeed, the very conventions themselves served to symbolize and accentuate the real essence or vital differentiation of every object delineated. The subject matter of the sculptures obviously came from the life of the vanished epoch of their creation and contained a large proportion of evident history. It is this abnormal historic-mindedness of the primal race, a chance circumstance operating, through coincidence, miraculously in our favor, which made the carvings so awesomely informative to us, and which caused us to place their photography and transcription above all other considerations. In certain rooms, the dominant arrangement was varied by the presence of maps, astronomical charts, and other scientific designs of an enlarged scale. These things giving a naive and terrible corroboration to what we gathered from the pictorial friezes and dados. In hinting at what the whole revealed, I can only hope that my account will not arouse a curiosity greater than sane caution on the part of those who believe me at all. It would be tragic if anyone were allured to that realm of death and horror by the very warning meant to discourage them. All furniture and other movables were absent, but the sculptures gave a clear idea of the strange devices which had once filled these tomb-like, echoing rooms. Above the glacial sheet, the floors were generally thick with detritus, litter, and debris, but farther down this condition decreased in some of the lower chambers and corridors, there was little more than gritty dust or ancient incrustations, 
while occasional areas had an uncanny air of newly swept immaculateness. To form even a rudimentary idea of our thoughts and feelings as we penetrated this eon-silent maze of unhuman masonry, one must correlate a hopelessly bewildering chaos of fugitive moods, memories, and impressions. The sheer appalling antiquity and lethal desolation of the place were enough to overwhelm almost any sensitive person, but added to these elements were the recent unexplained horror at the camp, and the revelations all too soon affected by the terrible mural sculptures around us. The moment we came upon a perfect section of carving, where no ambiguity of interpretation could exist, it took only a brief study to give us the hideous truth, a truth which it would be naive to claim Danforth and I had not independently suspected before, though we had carefully refrained from even hinting it to each other. There could now be no further merciful doubt about the nature of the beings which had built and inhabited this monstrous dead city millions of years ago, when man's ancestors were primitive archaic mammals, and vast dinosaurs roamed the tropical steppes of Europe and Asia. We had previously clung to a desperate alternative, and insisted, each to himself, that the omnipresence of the five-pointed motifs meant only some cultural or religious exaltation of the archaean natural object which had so patently embodied the quality of five-pointedness, as the decorative motifs of Minoan Crete exalted the sacred bull, those of Egypt, the Scarabaeus, those of Rome, the wolf and the eagle, and those of various savage tribes, some chosen totem animal. But this lone refuge was now stripped from us, and we were forced to face definitely the reason-shaking realization which the reader of these pages had doubtless long ago anticipated. I can scarcely bear to write it down in black and white even now, but perhaps that will not be necessary. The things once rearing and dwelling in this frightful masonry in the age of dinosaurs were not indeed dinosaurs, but far worse. Mere dinosaurs were new and almost brainless objects, but the builders of this city were wise and old, and had left certain traces in rocks even then laid down well nigh a thousand million years. Rocks laid down before the true life of Earth that advanced beyond plastic groups of cells. Rocks laid down before the true life of Earth that existed at all. They were the makers and enslavers of that life, and above all doubt, the originals of the fiendish elder myths which things like the Panotic Manuscripts and the Necronomicon affrightedly hint about. They were the great old ones that had filtered down from the stars when Earth was young, the beings whose substance an alien evolution had shaped, and whose powers were such as this planet had never bred. And to think that only the day before, Danforth and I had actually looked upon fragments of their millennially fossilized substance, and that poor Lake and his party had seen their complete outlines. It is of course impossible for me to relate in proper order the stages by which we picked up what we know of that monstrous chapter of pre-human life. After the first shock of the certain revelation, we had to pause a while to recuperate, and it was fully three o'clock before we got started on our actual tour of systematic research. I still wonder that we deduced so much in the short time at our disposal. Of course, we even now have only the barest outline, and much of that was obtained later on from a study of the photographs and sketches we made. It may be the effect of this later study, the revived memories and vague impressions acting in conjunction with his general sensitiveness, and with that final supposed horror glimpse, whose essence he will not reveal even to me, which has been the immediate source of Danforth's present breakdown. But it had to be, for we could not issue our warning intelligently without the fullest possible information, 
and the issuance of that warning is a prime necessity. Certain lingering influences in that unknown Antarctic world of disordered time and alien natural law made it imperative that further exploration be discouraged. We'll return with Chapter 7 right after these sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. And now Chapter 7 of At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. The full story, so far as deciphered, will eventually appear in an official bullet of Miskatonic University. Here I shall sketch only the salient highlights in a formless, rambling way. Myth or otherwise, the sculptures told of the coming of those star-headed things to the nascent, lifeless Earth out of cosmic space, their coming, and the coming of many other alien entities, such as at certain times embark upon spatial pioneering. They seemed able to traverse the interstellar ether on their vast membranous wings, thus oddly confirming some curious hill folklore long ago told me by an antiquarian colleague. They lived under the sea a good deal, building fantastic cities and fighting terrific battles with nameless adversaries by means of intricate devices employing unknown principles of energy. Evidently their scientific and mechanical knowledge far surpassed man's today, though they made use of its more widespread and elaborate forms only when obliged to. Some of the sculptures suggested that they had passed through a stage of mechanized life on other planets, but had receded upon finding its effects emotionally unsatisfying. Their preternatural toughness of organization and simplicity of natural wants made them peculiarly able to live in a high plane without the more specialized fruits of artificial manufacture, and even without garments, except for occasional protection against the elements. It was under the sea, at first for food, and later for other purposes, that they first created earth life, using available substances according to long-known methods. The more elaborate experiments came after the annihilation of various cosmic enemies. They had done the same thing on other planets, having manufactured not only necessary foods, but certain multicellular protoplasmic masses capable of molding their tissues into all sorts of temporary organs under hypnotic influence, and thereby forming ideal slaves to perform the heavy work of the community. These viscous masses were without doubt what Abdul al-Hazred whispered about as the Shoggoths in his frightful Necronomicon, though even that mad Arab had not hinted that any existed on earth except in the dreams of those who had chewed a certain alkaloidal herb. When the star-headed old ones on this planet had synthesized their simple food forms and bred a good supply of Shoggoths, they allowed other cell groups to develop into the forms of animal and vegetable life for sundry purposes extirpating any whose presence became troublesome. With the aid of the Shoggoths, 
whose expansions could be made to lift prodigious weights. The small, low cities under the sea grew to vast and imposing labyrinths of stone, not unlike those which later rose on land. Indeed, the highly adaptable old ones had lived much on the land in other parts of the universe, and probably retained many traditions of land construction. As we studied the architecture of all these sculptured Paleogean cities, including that whose aeon-dead corridors we were even then traversing, we were impressed by a curious coincidence which we have not yet tried to explain, even to ourselves. The tops of the buildings, which in the actual city around us had, of course, been weathered into shapeless ruins ages ago, were clearly displayed in the bas-reliefs, and showed vast clusters of needle-like spires, delicate finials on certain cone and pyramid apexes, and tiers of thin, horizontal scalloped disks capping cylindrical shafts. This was exactly what we had seen in that monstrous and portentous mirage, cast by a dead city whence such skyline features had been absent for thousands and tens of thousands of years, which loomed on our ignorant eyes across the unfathomed mountains of madness as we first approached poor Lake's ill-fated camp. As to the life of the old ones, both under the sea and after part of them migrated to land, volumes could be written. Those in shallow water had continued the fullest use of the eyes at the ends of their five main head tentacles, and had practiced the arts of sculpture and of writing in quite the usual way, the writing accomplished with a stylus on waterproof waxen surfaces. Those lower down in the ocean depths, though they used a curious phosphorescent organism to furnish light, pieced out their vision with obscure special senses operating through the prismatic cilia on their heads, senses which rendered all the old ones partly independent of light in emergencies. Their forms of sculpture and writing had changed curiously during the descent, embodying certain apparently chemical coating processes, probably to secure phosphorescence, which the bas reliefs could not make clear to us. The beings moved in the sea partly by swimming, using the lateral crinoid arms, and partly by wriggling with the lower tier of tentacles containing the pseudo-feet. Occasionally they accomplished long swoops with the auxiliary use of two or more sets of their fan-like folding wings. On land, they locally used the pseudo-feet, but now and then flew to great heights over long distances with their wings. The many slender tentacles into which the crinoid arms branched were infinitely delicate, flexible, strong, and accurate in muscular nervous coordination, ensuring the utmost skill and dexterity in all artistic and other manual operations. The toughness of the things was almost incredible. Even the terrific pressure of the deepest sea bottoms appeared powerless to harm them. Very few seemed to die at all except by violence, and their burial places were very limited. The fact that they covered their vertically inhumed head with five-pointed inscribed mounds set up thoughts in Danforth and me which made a fresh pause and recuperation necessary after the sculptures revealed it. The beans multiplied by means of spores, like vegetable pteridophytes, as Lake had suspected, but owing to their prodigious toughness and longevity, and consequent lack of replacement needs, they did not encourage the large-scale development of new prothalia except when they had new regions to colonize. The young matured swiftly and received an education evidently beyond any standard we can imagine. The prevailing intellectual and aesthetic life was highly evolved and produced a tenaciously enduring set of customs and institutions which I shall describe more fully in my coming monograph. These varied slightly according to sea or land residence, but had the same foundations and essentials. Though their culture was mainly urban, some agriculture and much stock raising existed. 
Mining and a limited amount of manufacturing were also practiced. Travel was very frequent, but permanent migration seemed relatively rare except for the vast colonizing movements by which the race expanded. The persistence with which the old ones survived various geologic changes and convulsions of the Earth's crust was little short of miraculous. Though few or none of their first cities seem to have remained beyond the Archaean Age, there was no interruption in their civilization or in the transmission of their records. Their original place of advent to the planet was the Antarctic Ocean, and it is likely that they came not long after the matter forming the moon was wrenched from the neighboring South Pacific. According to one of the sculptured maps, the whole globe was then underwater, with stone cities gathered farther and farther from the Antarctic as eons passed. Another map shows a vast bulk of dry land around the South Pole, where it is evident that some of the beings made experimental settlements, though their main centers were transferred to the nearest sea bottom. Later maps, which displayed the land mass as cracking and drifting, and sending certain detached parts northward, uphold in a striking way the theories of continental drift lately advanced by Taylor, Wegner, and Jolie. With the upheaval of new land in the South Pacific, tremendous events began. Some of the marine cities were hopelessly shattered, yet that was not the worst misfortune. Another race, a land race of beings shaped like octopi and probably corresponding to fabulous prehuman spawn of Cthulhu, soon began filtering down from cosmic infinity and precipitated a monstrous war which for a time drove the old ones wholly back to the sea. A colossal blow in view of the increasing land settlements. Later peace was made and the new lands were given to Cthulhu's spawn whilst the old ones held the sea and the older lands. New land cities were founded, the greatest of them in the Antarctic, for this region of first arrival was sacred to them. From then on, as before, the Antarctic remained the center of the Old One civilization, and all the cities built there by the Cthulhu spawn were blotted out. Then suddenly the lands of the Pacific sank again, taking with them the frightful stone city of Rie and all the cosmic octopi, so that the Old Ones were again supreme on the planet, except for one shadowy fear about which they did not like to speak. At a rather later age, their cities dotted all the land and water areas of the globe, hence the recommendation in my coming monograph that some archaeologists make systematic borings with Pabody's type of apparatus in certain widely separated regions. The steady trend down the ages was from water to land, a movement encouraged by the rise of new land masses, though the ocean was never wholly deserted. Another cause of the landward movement was the new difficulty in breeding and managing the Shoggoths upon which successful sea life depended. With the march of time, as the sculptures sadly confessed, the art of creating new life from inorganic matter had been lost, so that the old ones had to depend on the molding of forms already in existence. On land, the great reptiles proved highly tractable, but the Shoggoths of the sea, reproducing by fission and acquiring a dangerous degree of accidental intelligence, presented for a time a formidable problem. Sculptured images of these Shoggoths filled Danforth and me with horror and loathing. They were normally shapeless entities composed of a viscous jelly which looked like an agglutination of bubbles, and each averaged about 15 feet in diameter when a sphere. They had, however, a constantly shifting shape and volume, throwing out temporary developments or forming apparent organs of sight, hearing, and speech in imitation of their masters either spontaneously or according to suggestion. The sculptures did show a period in which Shoggoths were tamed and broken by armed old ones, like the wild horses of the American West were tamed by cowboys. 
The Shoggoths had rebelled, and during that rebellion they'd shown an ability to live out of water. This transition was not encouraged, since their usefulness on land would hardly have been commensurate with the trouble of their management. During the Jurassic Age, the Old Ones met fresh adversity in the form of a new invasion from outer space, this time by half-fungus, half-crustacean creatures, creatures undoubtedly the same as those figuring in certain whispered hill legends of the North, and remembered in the Himalayas as the Maigo, or Abominable Snowman. To fight these beings, the Old Ones attempted, for the first time since their terrain advent, to sally forth again into the planetary ether, but, despite all traditional preparations, found it no longer possible to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Whatever the old secret of interstellar travel had been, it was now definitely lost to the old race. In the end, the Maigo drove the old ones out of all northern lands, though they were powerless to disturb those in the sea. Little by little, the slow retreat of the elder race to their original Antarctic habitat was beginning. In the latest discoverable specimen we found, dating perhaps from the Pliocene Age, the approximate world of today appeared quite clearly despite the linkage of Alaska with Siberia, of North America with Europe through Greenland, and of South America with the Antarctic continent through Graham Land. In the Carboniferous map, the whole globe, ocean floor, and rifted landmass alike bore symbols of the old ones' vast stone cities. But in the later charts, the gradual recession toward the Antarctic became very plain. The final Pliocene specimen showed no land cities except on the Antarctic continent and the tip of South America, nor any ocean cities north of the 50th parallel of the south latitude. Knowledge and interest in the northern world, save for a study of coastlines probably made during the long exploration flights on those fan-like membranous wings, had evidently declined to zero among the old ones. Destruction of cities through the upthrust of mountains, the centrifugal rending of continents, the seismic convulsions of land or sea bottom, and other natural causes, was the matter of common record, and it was curious to observe how fewer and fewer replacements were made as the ages wore on. The vast dead megalopolis that yawned around us seemed to be the last general center of the race, built early in the Cretaceous Age after a titanic earth-buckling had obliterated a still vaster predecessor not far distant. It appeared that this general region was the most sacred spot of all, where reputedly the first old ones had settled on a primal sea bottom. In the new city, many of those features we could recognize in the sculptures, but which stretched fully a hundred miles along the mountain range in each direction beyond the farthest limits of our aerial survey. There were reputed to be preserved certain sacred stones forming part of the first sea bottom city, which thrust up to light after long epochs in the course of the general crumbling of strata. We'll return next week with chapters 8 and 9 from H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. We hope you're enjoying the story. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. We'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time.